Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. First Centier Investors are a global asset management group managing $247.3 billion of assets as of the 30th September 2021. They have 17 independent teams operating across equities, fixed income, listed and direct infrastructure and multi-asset, led by principles of responsible investment and stewardship. They are home to FSSA Investment Managers, an Asian and global emerging markets equities investor. Stuart Investors, a pioneer in emerging market equities and sustainable investing, and Real Index Investments, a systematic equities manager. Welcome back to the XY Advisor Podcast. I'm Fraser Jack, and today we are talking about buying and selling financial planning businesses. I'm joined by Chris Athanasios. Welcome. Thank you so much, Fraser, for having me on the on, on the podcast. Now, how did I do with the pronunciation? Was that all right? Did I? Very well. <laughs> uh, now, tell us, you're a, you're a lawyer. You spend a bit of time working um, in the space with different businesses. Tell us a little bit about your, your day job. Sure. So, um, I uh, co-founded um, Miller & Prince um, about five, approximately five years ago um, with my two business partners, Matthew and George. We came from a big, big law firms. I practice in corporate banking and restructuring. Um, those are my particular industry sector practice areas, I should say. Um, and my business partners do a lot of property, both commercial and residential and, and, and strata law. Um, and that's yep. their practice areas. We have a team um, of associates, so three associates who assist us and a paralegal and soon to be a law clerk. So there's eight of us in the, um, in the firm. Well, fantastic. And location? Uh, in Sydney CD- CBD. We actually just moved offices um, closer to Circular Key. So um, um, not, not, yeah. nice spot to be in. There you go. There's probably a bit of office space ha- uh, hanging around in uh, in central uh, CBD of Sydney at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Good good time to find new premises. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, and Chris, how did you tell us about your journey? How long have you been uh, in this, and how did you get into law? In the yes. Place? So I've been. Um, I got into the industry when I was 18 years old as a pa- um, as a paralegal, as you do when you're in university. And um, so I started working when I was 18 years old. Moved from firm to firm, getting different mainly in the corporate and commercial sector. Then um, I was working in a relatively, you know, large boutique firm, had a national presence. I left that, got into the top T firm um, at Minter Ellison, focused focused a lot on banking or corporate banking. Um, And then my business partners, who I knew one, George, quite well, um, sort of knocked on the door and said, why why don't we start a firm? And, you know, after some pushback and eventually I said, you know what, why not take the leap of and have a crack and um, five years never looked back once yeah it's interesting because your journey is very similar to um, say young financial planners coming through these days you know looking going doing through a professional year coming and becoming an associate uh, working through that I think uh, our system's loosely based on uh, the legal system and then obviously being able to start your own firm yeah yeah and and now and now the objective is to grow it right and grow it in the right direction yeah, exactly right. And, uh, you know, so many similarities, you know, understanding who you best serve and, and who you can help and, and sort of swimming in your lane, all those sorts of things. Exactly. And, and and focusing and having a good relationship with clients, I guess, is the other similarity, right? So it's very relationship driven, especially, for example, in the Australian market. Yeah. 
And and uh, I guess a lot of your business, the same as you know, similar to an advisor, an advisor might have a bit more of a uh, ongoing service agreements with their clients. But um, you know, you, the relationship that you form with your clients sort of needs to needs to have referral relationships and getting new business in all the time. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. So tell us a little bit about uh, we, we we sort of want to focus today on you know financial planning books and buying and selling. There's obviously two sides to that. One is the as the purchaser. Uh, and the other is the seller. You know, I think uh, there'll probably be people on this uh, podcast listening to this that would benefit from both those angles of conversation, uh, probably one more than the other. But tell us about what you're seeing in the space with regards to, you know, mergers and acquisitions and buying and selling of, of, of financial planning books. Well, um, typically, you know, in, in you know, where, where, where a client, um, you know, either wants to sell their business or wants to purchase the business, typically we get involved at a very early stage because, and that's usually what's recommended, right? Because the last thing you want is, uh, as as you're close to trying to agree on, you know, purchase price and whatnot, then lawyers come in or you know, advisors come in. They're like, "Have you thought about this, this?" And then you end up reshuffling, you know, the transaction. So typically, we see a favorable uh, in a favorable situation. Clients get us involved early, and you know, just to follow through with that, preparing for um, preparing a plan for businesses. Um, you know, they can when when you prepare properly, you can significantly increase um, you know the high um, the purchase price when you're um, acting for the vendor. But but also with that in mind, you reduce stress and you know the uncertainty um, that comes with you know transaction. And no no transaction is clear cut. Every transaction, you know, you you do have to work with both the vendor and the purchaser because at the end of the day, you know, my view on all this is a successful. Advice is one that closes the deal, not tips over the deal, right? It's very easy to say, don't do the deal, but it's harder to say, okay, well, how can we work around this particular issue or, or, or circumstance? Yeah, I never really thought about the idea of a lot of deals that don't actually go through, you know, that start and then, then fall over. Tell us about what some of the main causes of that are. Well, I think not seeing eye to eye and managing expectations from the beginning, typically um, valuation misalignment this is probably a common one where the vendor thinks that their you know their business is worth a lot of money and the purchaser says no it's not like the reality is it's it's you know the valuation should be at x but also you know one thing that you don't see often where you know in the case where you're not buying a, a client book but more so you're buying the business as a whole integration um cultural integration is a is, is a very critical one as well um you, you know you, you would want to see a circumstance where you know, not only do you close the deal once you buy the business, but there is an integration in terms of cultural alignment, um, client servicing expectations, etc. Yeah, really interesting. And also, um, uh, I think I also feel there's things like uh, the licensing that sort of muddy the waters, and uh, you know what those client you know target markets are. Yeah, and again, um, just circling back on you know readying the business for sale or or. or you know, working with a purchaser to make sure that the purchase is seamless. Um, you know, just like clients speak to financial planners, right? Business owners should speak to professional advisors, you know, to assist them, um, you know, with getting the best best outcome on the transaction. Yeah, this is an interesting point. So we're talking about time, right? We're talking about the the time it takes to prepare versus the old, you know, the quick, fast sale type, I, I need to buy, I need to buy now. Uh, and that time, that preparation time can obviously lead to very different multiples of the, or business valuations yeah. and outcome as well um, yeah. um, on, on the transaction yeah what sort of time are we talking about we've seen a deal close um, at last Christmas you know we had a term sheet that came in um, mid-December we ended up closing at 31 January now, now that was really quick and we, we really focused on making sure that the client achieved that a, a particular objective 
Um, but granted, that particular, we, we were just purchasing, or our client was just purchasing the client book. So it was a bit more, um, the transaction was a bit more lean and the focus was a bit more particular on the particular transaction. It was a high quality asset. And what by high quality asset, what I mean by that is, you know, it was a, it was a particular um, client book that um, the, the, the value of the of the clients were in, in you know, the purchases are quite high. Yeah. Now, when you, when you talk about the difference between um, book uh, versus a business, can you just explain that? And- yeah. So, so typically when you're buying a client book, you're focusing on the actual clients and the rights associated with the clients, you know, being the recurring revenue, the benefit of the contracts, the records, et cetera. Whereas when you're buying a business, um, you focus more so on the overall business of the particular um, target company. So, um, for example, that would encompass the property where they conduct the business from. So you'll be taking over the lease and that can look like an assignment or innovation, but dealing with the new landlord. You'll be um, retaining the staff to ensure continuity of the business. You'll be looking at any material contracts that they have, such as, um, you know, software providers, licensing requirements. You'll be, um, obviously, you get the benefit of, you would try to get the benefit of the client book as well as part of that, as part of that transaction. So typically you see either the acquisition of client book with a focus of the recurring revenue of that, of the client book or, usually the business and ideally it comes down to what the what the objective of the purchaser is which is an important topic when you're speaking with the purchaser about acquiring a, a business is the idea that the purchaser has a current infrastructure um, has the infrastructure ready to bring on um, uh, you know more clients and an advisor in which case in in most cases they'll focus on the client book and you know maybe retaining one one advisor or two advisors that are able to service the client book or is it the case that you'd like to grow the business in a different in a different state, for example? In which case, you know, the question position to the purchaser is: Do we do we purchase the business, um, you know, in that particular state, as an example, so we can have a presence, for example, in Queensland or New South Wales or WA or Victoria? Um, so it, it really comes down to the circumstance of the particular purchase. Yeah, I was thinking when you were saying that sort of the, is it a merger or an acquisition or is it, a, you know, those sorts of things. But tell us about what's the difference then when it comes to um, valuations, recurring revenue models versus, you know, EBITDAs type thing. Tell us what, what's the difference. So so when you're purchasing um, a client book, um, usually the clients have, um, you know, there, there is recurring revenue associated with, with the particular clients. You know, one of the critical factors that we focus on um, that, that is important to focus on or the partisan focus, focus on is, well, what's the purchase price for that particular client book? Um, and and how do you, what is the methodology for calculating that purchase price? Um, so usually there is, you know, multiples of recurring revenue and, you know, I, this is not my particular um, specialty, but commentary that I've seen just out of interest in terms of, you know, well, how do you value the the recurring revenue? It really comes down to the, you know, to the client fees. And um, what I've read is client fees, um, you know, above three thousand um, dollars. Usually, typically, you got a valuation anywhere between, you know, the two point seven, two point eight mark to, you know, the three. I've recently seen three point eight, three point five of of the recurring revenue, um, annual recurring revenue, I should say. Um, and again, I'm no particular expert in this. In this, but this is just based on commentary that I've been reading. And you know, client fees less than three thousand um, dollars. You're looking typically in you know a, a multiple of one to one to two two point five um, of the recurring revenue. And again, that's yeah. no strict particular data. It's just you know 
average yeah. commentary that I've been reading. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? So, you know, obviously we, we think about the cost to serve a particular client and, and uh, if it's below that sort of average of 3,000 or, you know, if we if we assume the average is 3,000, uh, then it really affects the multiple. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then when you focus on so, – so that's when you typically buy in the client book um, – and, and then when you focus on the business, the purchase of the business, that, that, that can come in two forms. There's the assets. You could you purchase the assets. And as I've mentioned previously, when you purchase the assets, you know, you're getting an assignment of the lease. You, you're, trying, you, you're, you're making new offers to staff, to existing staff of the business. Um, so, so, so you're looking at the profitability of the business as a whole. Um, and, and, and the alternative to that is um, you purchase, instead of the assets, the shares, um, so you're taking over the target company um, shares, and that that can come in a number of forms. You can do um, minority interest, or you, you generally it's 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 complete purchase um, in in the business, and you, you're effectively stepping into the shoes of the previous vendor. That's probably the best way of describing it. And again, ways of multi computing the purchase price is either EBITDA or um, effectively the profitability of, of the business. Um, and again, not, not my particular um, specialty, but again, very, very critical and important factor when parties are negotiating what effectively what the purchase price is and what the computation and how, how do they compute to that, that purchase price. Yeah, that's a really interesting point then um, when it comes to full or majority shareholding. And I'm assuming there's probably going to be people that listen to this that one day will buy into a business. Uh, and they're buying a share in the in the company structure, I guess, that owns the business and therefore is responsible for all those leases and staff and uh, and all those other things. Uh, and, and that's generally if we went with an EBITDA business model. Um, so, do you ever like look at the two of them together and say, well, you know, you know, I guess if you're selling, you look at the two together and go, I want to sell it this way because it, it 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 works out to be a higher amount. Well, I, I mean, the purchaser is always going to have a review on that and a comment on that, right? So it really comes down to the teething between the vendor and the purchasers or their advisors. Yeah. Hey, I wanted to also just uh, while we were talking uh, before about um, uh, recurring revenue, how does a 12-month service agreement count? As, does that count as recurring or is it just um, for things that are uh, um, yeah, ongoing service arrangements that are more than 12 months? Well, I, I think, I think um, you know, my understanding of it is, that, is it's, it's, let me know if I haven't answered the question over here, but um, yep. it's the annual recurring revenue of that client and then it comes down to, for, for a particular period. Then it comes down to the purchaser doing due diligence to say, well, how long has that recurring revenue been existent? And you just hit a great point over here. Um, what I've seen at least in the past three, four transactions is the purchaser typically doesn't actually make payment upfront of the full consideration what, what they end up doing is paying anywhere between, and again, subject to all commercial negotiation, anywhere between 55 to 75% of the of the total consideration. And then the balance of the of the purchase price is paid over a year or two, statistically about two um, years to see, okay, well, how long is this recurring revenue going to be with with effectively the, biz, the, the business, quote unquote? Yeah. So that's the goodwill factor, if you like. From what uh, from conversations I've had in the past, I feel like that only ever benefits the purchaser, <laughs> as in the revenue is not going to go up as much as a, and if it does, it's sort of a, yeah. Well, I tell if you tell me which hat do I have on vendor slash purchaser, <laughs> I, I think from a purchaser perspective, it's to pre- well the last thing you want is to pay one hundred percent of the consideration the purchase price, and as we know, this industry is very key person 
driven, right, and very relationship driven. And, you know, the advisor that sold the business or the vendor that sold the, sold the client, I should say, ends up in two years starting their own or a year and a half starting again and then taking that exact same client because, you know, they've went to be three, four times, um, you know, in the past month and whatnot. Um, so, you know, you're protecting that that's the purchaser hat on. You're protecting the goodwill of the business and the legitimate interest of, you know, of, of the value of paying, you know, 2.2 or 2.5, three, three times recurring revenue. And from a vendor perspective, I guess, you know, really incentivizes them to ensure that the client remains with the purchaser. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of feel you're absolutely right. If you, depending on which hat you wear, if you if you're buying a business, and you want to you want to go in there with that. We'll pay you now some now and pay the rest later. And and if you're selling, then uh, you might want to go in with the hey, I just want it all up front. Let's just do the deal and walk away. Um, with, with those with those revenue, I know I know you're not uh, I know you're not a valuer. You you don't do the valuations. But uh, how do you see that then? Uh, like the other professions. That's, that's quite high compared to other conf- professions, isn't it? Like there's accounting books and legal books. They're not they're not up that two point seven to three point five times. No, yeah, I I agree with that. But I, I think I, it, it, you you need to look at the business, you know, at, at holistically, right? Um, you know, I've seen in other businesses away from professional services where EBITDA multiples are six seven times, and the reason for that is the infrastructure is there. The key persons, I, I think, the key is one one of the keys and you know, based on my very humble understanding of, you know, valuations, when, when you're paying five, six times multiple um, of, of an EBITDA or an adjusted EBITDA, the key persons, if they're taken out of the business, I think the critical component is, well, the business is self-sufficient. It can generate the profits. It can continue to generate the profits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think, you know, in, in terms of, you know, just circling back to your direct comment, I think it is quite relatively high, particularly, you know, for legal practitioners, we definitely don't have a, a high multiple. And I think the reason is that it's very key person driven, right? Um, if I leave tomorrow, you know, the firm, um, will my clients follow? Likely, um, um, likely follow, not guaranteed, but likely. Um, so I guess that reciprocates the, the multiple applied. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Now, key person risk for financial advisors, as you, as you sort of mentioned there, if you, if you are selling a book or even the business is – as as somebody that's selling their business to try and make sure that 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 key person risk is not there, uh, and to transition the clients over to having a relationship with the business more so than the, the key person. Yeah, before they sell. So 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 the way to police that from a purchaser perspective, or the way to govern that from a purchaser perspective, you know, this concept of key key person risk is effectively the, the relationship is with the advisor and the clients like the advisor and the advisor like the client, but that from the purchaser perspective, they're paying a multiple on their recurring revenue. Well, the way to police that generally is, you know, introducing concepts of restraint of trade and enforceable restraints of trade. Um, and, you know, the, the, the argument, you know, one of the arguments that uh, arguments that I try to position um, is, well, if we're paying, for example, three times recurring revenue on, on the client book, well, you should be restrained for three years. Um, that's, that's, you know, generally the way I position it um, when, when I'm acting for the purchaser. Yeah. How, how does that work, the restraint of trade? Because... You know, I, I hear different things. Some people say, "Well, you can't stop somebody from earning a living," but then, what's the what's the idea behind? So, the so the idea is to protect the interest, the purchaser's interest, and in, you know, if the purchaser's buying the client book, well, to protect the purchaser's interest in that client book, um, because the last thing anybody would want is you're buying three, for example, and I'll continue to re- to revert to three times recurring revenue, but for 
for, for the purpose of the example, three times recurring revenue. Well, you want to make sure that you haven't paid three times that client's recurring revenue only to find out six months later, the vendor's taken that exact same client and can redo it again um, and can sell it, uh, sell the right to that client or the entitlements to that client again. Um, so so it's restraining the particular vendor or, or the associates of the vendor to ensure that, you know, um, they don't have, they can't service that particular client in the context of a client book. Now, you want to make sure that you can, you, you want the restraints to be enforceable, and that's a quite a complicated area. Um, but the idea is to ensure that, again, the purchaser's interest in, in the context of a client book is is protected. Yeah, now, in this restraint of trade, it's kind of, it feels a bit like what you're saying is a restraint of stealing the clients, not necessarily trade, like if they can go get new clients. Well, yeah, let's, if we unpack the restraint of trade um, concept for a moment. There's there's a number of ways you can restrain somebody from from trading in you know let's just call it financial planning businesses. You can stop them from investing or participating in any investing in any financial planning business because they may have an interest in that. You can stop them from particular working as an employee in a business, or and this can be a combination of all by the way. Or you can stop them from directly dealing with that with the particular clients that you. Uh, that, that that you're about to sell. So, it, you know, in my in, in my you know personal opinion, I think a restraint that is particularly enforceable would be, let's say, a common scenario is a purchaser purchase purchases from a vendor or client book. Well, the restraint can say, well, you can't touch this particular, or you can't service this particular client book um, for a period of say three years. Um, and usually, we introduce concepts such as cascading provisions, which essentially means, you know, three two, one, six months. And the idea of that is to say, well, if three years isn't enforceable, court should look down at two years, one year, et cetera. So I think that would be a very enforceable restraint of trade where you say, well, you can't touch this particular client book. I paid you for that client book and we agreed on a fair valuation. Um, but you you can go, you know, work as a financial planner um, for a different business provided you don't touch those clients. I could see that as a, be a very enforceable restraint of trade. Um, the alternative is, you know, and something that's a bit more robust, I would say, is you can't touch a client book, you can't work, you can't invest in financial planning, you can't do anything associated with financial planning. I think that would be a very difficult restraint of trade to enforce. Um, so I, th- I think the short point and the short message to take from it is really apply, purchasers should really apply their mind when they're negotiating this restraint of trade. What is it that you're really trying to protect? Now, you mentioned culture and staff a little bit earlier. Uh, tell us about what you see in that space and how you know how, how you do do you due diligence on culture and staff and understanding uh, and cultural alignments and fitting you know how, how does because that that doesn't seem very excuse me you know my talking about this about lawyery is not very like how do you, how do you deal with all that uh, if something's more of a I don't know and that feels more HR than than legal yeah well I, I don't deal with it more it's more so hearing feedback I like to take feedback not only from financial planning businesses. Um, that, you know, we either sell or, or, or purchase for. But generally, you know, I do a bit of work in the private equity field. And it's, again, you know, being a lawyer, you try to put yourself in the practical scenario and focus what's on critical because generally lawyers are criticised um, for only focusing on a, an indemnity clause which will likely crystallise or not crystallise. So I like to take a step back and say, okay, once a transaction completes, let's touch base with clients and just see well, how did the purchase or how did the completion go? Is there a good integration? And one of the common things that I see, at least in the private equity field, is part of the due diligence period, or you know, as as the purchasers acquiring the, the business of the vendor, interviewing with staff. So just meeting the staff, even if it's for a coffee, trying to understand, you know, the person, the culture, 
of the staff. Um, getting, for example, client references is not a bad idea either. Um, do do the clients get along, you know, with the particular staff, or is it um, uh, is the culture not not so aligned? So I guess doing practical due diligence is probably something that. I don't see much in the financial planning, and I'm not sure if you know the vendors protective over, over the clients, but I don't think it's actually a bad idea, um, even if it's a quick 15, 20-minute coffee on a confidential basis. You know, Clients don't need to disclose their full name so the vendor feels protected. But if the purchase is going to purchase the business, and by business I mean the assets or the shares of, of, of the target company, I don't think it's a bad idea for the purchaser to say, oh, how do I take a step back over here? How do I really dig into the business over here? What are the staff like? Do the staff get along with the clients? Are the clients, do the clients like the particular advisors before I make an offer of employment to that advisor? Um, just really digging deep and trying to understand the culture because it's all good and well to sign the documents and complete the deal. But what happens after the integration? That's the most important, post-integration M&A. What happens thereafter? That's, I guess, the critical point. There's so many bits to that. Now, just you mentioned the due diligence period. Give us a give us a quick example of how that works. Like, how long does it normally take? And yeah, so so typically in transactions um, where you're buying the business, and whether that be in the form of assets or or, or shares, um, it's common for the vendor to give the purchaser access in the um, for due diligence, and then that access is restricted. Well, who's entitled to you know due diligence? Usually, it's the purchaser's advisors. And that includes lawyers, accountants, et cetera. And ordinarily there's a period um, and, you know, that access is refined under the, you know, under the um, review and comment of the vendor and the purchaser would essentially get in, get in there, quote unquote, and is, start issuing requests for information. And, you know, again, this is in the context of selling, um, selling and purchasing the business, not so much in the client um, acquisition book, but more so in the context of, of the business, larger businesses. And request for information is the common method of, um, which is essentially a list of questions prepared by the purchaser or the purchaser's advisors, and the vendor's got to respond to that, but also physical access to the premises to see how the operations continue or are, are effectively um, occur during business hours. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the way you, you mentioned there, the idea of actually you know speaking to the clients, because I guess that could be a, a, yeah, a very difficult area for somebody who's selling to give a uh, purchaser, especially if they're in the, um, obviously the same business, uh, access to the, the clients to say, here, bring them up and talk to them. But but you see, if we just apply our thought, and this, this is one thing I've, I've tried to really speak to vendors about, right? Like, let, let's unpack that for a moment. A client, if, if the vendor's got a good relationship with a client, right? I've got a lot of good relationship with my clients, for example. If from a vendor, you've got to think about it as a win. How do I show to this purchaser that the clients like the business, the clients like the staff? How do I maximize my value to exit this business, Right. Well, I can introduce them to a few close clients of mine, clients that won't disclose their confidential information and really position and and present the business favorably to the purchaser. Yeah, and so I'm imagining then in this situation, you choose your your your, your friendly clients or the ones that like you or the ones that uh, trust you. But then I suppose you've got to go to them and say, hey, look, I'm transitioning out of this business and I'm selling it and I want to sell you across to these other people. How's that conversation go? Well, I mean, look, that, that conversation is always a bit, um, sensitive as we know, right? But if you can just give the client the comfort and show the client the, the proposed journey or what that looks like, um, you know, and, and in this day and age, I feel like, you know, clients want the best. I, I, both parties want the best for, for both. I mean, you know, I, I could just imagine 
Um, I, I've, I've certainly got this in my circle of network. You know, I, I work closely with an accounting firm, Air Accounting, and one of my good mates, one of the, the, um, the partners there. If I said to him, we're selling, for example, Miller and Prince, I could see him generally being happy and wanting to be involved in the process and assisting me and, and assisting us in, in maximising the value. So I think it comes down to relationship transparency and um, transparency is definitely key. Yep. And, and, you know, taking them through the journey, I guess, or what the proposed journey looks like and how does it benefit them? For example, is the purchaser providing a different service or offering that the current business doesn't offer? And how does that benefit them? Yeah, it's a good, exactly right. Find a, find a way that this could be a, a win for the client and present that to them. And yeah. sorry, just, just to add to that, and it may be the case that when you consider it from a vendor perspective, it may be the case that, for example, if you've got top th- if you've got 30 clients, right, maybe you refine, it, refine that, you know, involvement of the due diligence or, or you know, in, in, then being involved in the, in the sale process to the top 10 clients the most valuable clients, the ones that really add to the to, to the value of the business or the purchase price. That's also, I guess, a bit of a risk too that if that if those top 10 clients aren't completely satisfied with the services that they're getting, then they might turn around and go, oh, well, you're selling, I'm going to go find, I'm going to go do my own due diligence and find somebody else. Talk to me about privacy act concerns, whether it be through selling a book or a business. Um, obviously, the consumer um, is providing confidential information and private information to their advisor. Um, for that advisor to then on sell that information, obviously as part of a file to a new advisor, how does it how does it sit with any of the privacy regulation stuff? Um, typically, from a purchaser perspective, you just seek um, basic warranties that you know the Privacy Act has been complied with. So that that's from a purchaser sort of perspective, and from from a vendor perspective, I guess you just need to ensure we just need to ensure that you know there's no breach of any privacy um, sort of regulations. I think from a vendor perspective, if they've got the appropriate, appropriate protocols and procedures in place with their clients such that, you know, they've complied with all, you know, we're allowed to disclose your personal information um, if required by law or if, you know, we're selling a business, then typically a vendor will be covered off in that perspective. And from a purchaser perspective, we just, the, the typical warranty we, say, we seek is um, the vendor or the business has complied with all laws relating to privacy. Relating to privacy. Fantastic, and um, and so just on that uh, transition across, it seems to it seems to feel like there's quite a marketing strategy when it comes to presenting to the clients that they're now moving to a new a new business. Are you seeing businesses that are doing well there, or what they might be doing? Well, I, I, I'm I'm ordinarily not involved in that process. I, I just hear about, and and, and I think that the, the biggest thing from an advisor perspective is to make sure you know the clients are you know well aware, etc. Because you know, if your purchase price is linked to the to, to the relevant client, you want to make sure that that client is either not annoyed or doesn't understand the contour of the new business, et cetera, et cetera. So, so usually from, I don't hear a lot of feedback, um, but usually from our perspective, we say, you know, just make sure that you're, um, you know, you, you've kept clients up to date, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there's generally a story, isn't there, as to why that person is selling that particular part of the business or, or, the, or the whole business. Uh, and I guess it's just around transparency and making sure the clients understand that story. Yeah. And from a purchaser's point of view, that's probably also a good story too to be able to be told as to why they really want to uh, invest or, or bring on that particular client. Yeah. Um, and and with uh, with the size of businesses, are we seeing? Because I've spoken to different people before around the concept of what's a good size business to to hold a valuation. Are we seeing that you know bigger businesses can get different sort of multiples or different business valuations when it comes to versus the, the one man band type business? Oh, most certainly. Um, and I think I was touching on that a bit earlier. Um, the bigger businesses, there, there, there is um, many sessions on valuations. 
and arguments on multiples on EBITDA and profit and whatnot. Um, <clears throat> that's in the context of, of a large business. And, and more so from a client book perspective, again, the, the bigger the client revenue, you know, in terms of per client, the, the, the bigger the multiple is and the lower it is, um, the, the, the lower the, um, the, the client revenue or per client revenue, um, the lower the multiple is on, on, in that perspective. Um, and again, it, it just goes down to a lot in the context of, you know, a sale of business, whether it be by way of asset or, 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 or shares. Um, it comes down to if the key person's one of the factors, again, in my humble opinion, not, not speaking about valuations a lot, but, you know, if the key persons are removed, is the business, can the business continue to operate without that key person and, and, and generate a profit? Yeah. And probably one topic that we haven't touched on is another form of, you know, sale and purchase is if, you know, um, there's a founder of, of, of a financial planning business and then, you know, they've had an advisor that's worked with them for many years and that advisor, you know, usually called succession, right? And, you know, the founder, founding financial planner wants to sort of slowly transition out. And that advisor is then introduced to the business and given equity in the business called, called succession, right? Succession planning. That, that advisor um, would typically look at the profits of the business and pay a multiple of the, of, of the profits. And I guess the win-win in that is, well, um, there's no really strict change in there's a change in ownership, but not change in culture because the advisor has been part of the business, is aware of the clients, is um, familiar with the clients. Um, the only upside is the advisor has equity in the business now, or is proposed to have equity in the business. Yeah, it seems it seems like a great, and uh, I think a lot of people strive for that type of. Uh, you know, somebody to take over the business and 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 transition out. I think law firms obviously have got many many years of of doing this with regards to bringing on partners and and those sorts of things. Uh, I think we're a little bit newer in the financial advice section, and and obviously, I think a lot of people have looked for a, a transition, but haven't been able to find the right person, or something happens and that person stays for a couple of years and then decides that they it's not what the business that they're after after all. I think, and I think a big part of that comes back down to um, finding somebody who wants to work with that ideal client, uh, not just wants to work in in a business. How do you find working with uh, AFSLs in different AFSLs and transitioning businesses from one to another? I think because that to me that sort of whether you whether you buy and sell within your same licensee or whether you're transitioning across a different licensee just adds a different layer of, of uh, I, I, I guess, cloudiness. Yeah. Well, with the, the only involvement that I have with the AFSLs, we, we had an advice on whether the AFSL is appropriate for the relevant financial planning business and you know we could give advice but you usually we just one of the conditions um that we include is you know a corporate authorized representative agreement is 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 negotiated between the relevant parties um as part of the sale and purchase um so that we've got a very minor touch on the afsl sort of stuff just because it's got its own sort of complexity um so so typically you know when, when we involved in more so from purchaser side we make sure our conditions are a pretty watertight and one of the conditions are you know there's a corporate authorized or appropriate corporate authorized representative agreement um, entered into by the parties and agreed by the parties yep and just just in most uh corporate authorized representative agreements you'd often see uh, you know a buyer of last resort buyer of first resort type or probably first first resort i would say uh you know like if you're going to sell your business come to us and ask us first yep yep Fantastic. Uh, all right. So, quick, uh, quickly, then tips before we wrap up. Tips about um, what we can. If you're if you're selling a business, uh, you mentioned things like you know get involved early uh, and 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 making sure that you really um you, you, this transition takes a little bit of time. 
uh, and reducing that key person risk. Are there any other tips for a business that's looking at selling? Um, yeah, I've got some um, critical pointers. So, so um, preparing early for any sale or purchase. So, getting advisors involved um, can you know make the, the process quite seamless. Um, knowing the true from a vendor perspective, knowing the true value of the business, and from a purchase purchaser perspective, critically analyzing the value of, of the business and how they compute the proposed purchase price. And then with that in mind, the, you know, the derivatives that come with that is, okay, well, what are my conditions associated with, with the purchase? You know, if I'm buying the business for a million dollars from a purchase perspective, how am I going to fund that? Do I go get debt? Am I going to do past debt, um, half debt, half, you know, equity, or do I use cash, cash in the bank? How do I pay that purchase price is a common one. And, you know, my strong recommendations with these key person driven businesses is, you know, break up that consideration. 60, 70% up front, the remaining over a two-year period, um, get to test a client book. I, I, I focus on client book because that's really the value of the business, the clients. Um, and then pay it over a tranche period, of t- that one, two-year period. And with that in mind, what else What else do I want to be giving as part of the, or requiring as part of the purchase price? Restraint of trades um, is pretty crit- critical, important one. Is my due diligence satisfied? And do I need further advisors to service the particular client book? One of the ideas around restraint and trade actually to, to employ the person or, or have a, a workout period? Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, when when usually you'd have, if you're going to break the purchase price up, say 60, 70% up front, and then the remaining over a two-year period, they would be employed. Now, whether that employment looks as an independent contractor or an employment, usually you need to get tax advice because there's pros and cons with both. But you, you, the, the restraint will obviously carve out, um, you know, the fact that they're servicing effectively the purchaser or the purchaser's um, clients, that that restraint will be there. Yeah. And you mentioned tax advice, obviously. Uh, you know, you talked about advisors before, you know, getting accountancy advice as well as uh, legal advice. Well, I think it's critical that, um, you know, the lawyers and the accountant, I think on every deal, whether financial planning or otherwise, um, I think it's critical that the lawyers and the accountants are on the same page uh, uh, because I think that makes a world of difference on a deal. Yeah. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for um, coming on and chatting to us about all the pros and cons and tips and ideas around purchasing, buying, selling, mergers, acquisitions, uh, transitions, all those different things around uh, getting in and out of a business. Uh, if someone wanted to continue the conversation with you, what's the best way for them to get hold of you? My email, uh, best by email or by mo- mobile phone. Um, I'm best on the mobile phone, not, not the office line. I just like picking up the phone straight away and just speaking to somebody. Um, I'm happy to share those details with you, Fraser. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. Well, give them a go now. Let's, let's throw them out there. Uh, so mobile number is 0422-593-691. And my email, which is long because um, my last name, but it's c.athanaisios at millerprints.com.au. Yep. So millerprints.com.au is the website. Exactly. Yep. And uh, you can probably find you on LinkedIn too, I would imagine. Most definitely on LinkedIn as well. Fantastic. Chris, thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing with us what you're seeing in this space. Really appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much, Fraser, for having me.